Hi, I'm Justin Guest, a doctoral student in the Government Department here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. With us on the hot seat today is Professor Sumantra Bose. He is a professor of international and comparative politics in the department and has recently published Contested Lands, his new book. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, let's get started, Professor Bose. You know, just two months ago, I was in Mostar, Bosnia. And as you know, it's a divided city. Muslims on one side, Christians on the other, linked by a rebuilt bridge that metaphorically crumbled during the war a decade ago. And you know, when I was there, I spoke to a young Bosnian woman about the situation, and she said that very little has changed. She said that it's like a land frozen in time, uh, and that hate runs deep in the Bosnian countryside. Now, political scientists examine systems of government, institutions, and societies of people. But how can hate be examined in the same way? Hate is probably not best studied um, in the framework of uh, political science. Um, as you probably know, uh, my specialism is in institutional design. And I do think that institutional design does play a role in either aggravating or mitigating conflict. Um, for example, I have argued in some of my work that the rather strange institutional structure of late Titoist Yugoslavia in the 1970s and 1980s had a lot to do with the breakdown of the country and its fragmentation in the early 1990s. Uh, but surely that was not the only or perhaps even the principal cause. Um, you will recall that a lot of people, perhaps most people in the 1990s, were very surprised by the way Yugoslavia unraveled and this explosion of uh, violent enmity. Because for 45 years prior to that, um, Yugoslavia had seemed like a relatively stable, albeit authoritarian, a relatively prosperous uh, country in which people you know, li lived and let live, uh, and sometimes got on quite harmoniously. Now, what happened in Bosnia, and Mostar is one of my favorite towns, I'm, I'm glad you went there over the summer, um, but it's a great wintertime destination as well, uh, very striking with the snow on the mountains around Mostar. Um, what happened in the early 1990s is that there were some hidden memories, especially from the previous episode of of intergroup violence between 1941 and 1945, which apparently were buried, but they hadn't gone away. It was just latent. Um, and it reappeared uh, in a rather nasty and brutal form. For example, in the summer of 1992, when the Bosnian War began, um, some of the worst atrocities committed by Bosnian Serb forces against Bosnian Muslim civilians were in an area around a town called Priador in northwestern Bosnia, where exactly 50 years before that, in 1942, uh, a large number of Bosnian Serbs had been slaughtered by, uh, by German and uh, allied uh, pro-fascist troops. So I guess my rather long-winded answer to your question is that this is one of the many shortcomings of political science as a discipline, unless, of course, we radically broaden our understanding of political science. But I think, for example, what I specialize in, what I enjoy doing, 
uh, and think I do reasonably well, the, the study of institutions doesn't really have an explanation for, uh, for this sort of uh, 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 you know, resurgence of hatred. I think one has to adopt a much more multidisciplinary perspective, looking at history, anthropology, social psychology, and so on, even literature. And indeed, what you focus on in your book is peace, the very opposite of hate. And besides entrenched hate, what trends have you seen that are threaded through the peace processes uh, in the world's enduring conflicts in places like Sri Lanka, Cyprus, Bosnia, that separate them from similar conflicts that seem to be resolved for the time being in places like Quebec or the Basque country of Spain? The, the reason I wrote my newest book, Contested Lands, is that I wanted to write about peace and the prospects, however difficult, of peace. Uh, I was actually a bit fed up, you know, sick and tired, of uh, writing on war and violence uh, and, and so on. I wanted to do something a little more positive, a little more optimistic. Um, you mentioned uh, Sri Lanka. My first book, uh, published in 1994, uh, was a revised version of my uh, undergraduate honors thesis at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and it was on the Sri Lankan conflict. But for about a decade after that, I really went off the, the, the Sri Lankan case. Uh, at least I put it to one side. And that was partly because the never-ending and ever-bloodier violence in Sri Lanka was just terribly depressing. You know, I couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, about the similarities that cut across disputes, um, I study the most intractable form of ethno-national conflict. These are sovereignty disputes where different groups, at least two groups, and in some cases more than two groups, as in Bosnia, where there are three contending groups, um, have rival and incompatible claims to national self-determination. That is, there are clashing claims to sovereignty over the same territory. Now, there are other genres of political dispute, including lower order forms of ethno-national conflict, which are more amenable to compromise through negotiation and bargaining. But sovereignty disputes, like the one between Arabs and Jews over the Holy Land, that's been going on for 100 years now, are inherently of a zero-sum character. Uh, and that is why the subject of the book was so challenging, in a way. It's a very great challenge for peacemakers. Academics like me can write whatever they want, you know, come up with recommendations. And the recommendations can be perfectly sensible and plausible, but it's another thing to actually negotiate agreements to zero-sum sovereignty disputes and then implement them. So if power vacuums expose and enable an identity politics, in the interest of peace, is a Machiavellian prince um, better than an open democracy in ethnically disparate places like, say, Syria? No, I don't think so. Uh, one of the things that I gained from my education in the United States as both an undergraduate and later as a postgraduate at Columbia uh, was a healthy respect for liberal democracy with all its flaws and limitations. Um, I didn't have the same degree of respect uh, growing up in India for liberal democracy. Uh, it was only after I went to America that I realized that this is something deserving of greater respect. Uh, I was a bit of a Jacobin in my 
uh, in my outlook uh, until I became Americanized. Um, I do fundamentally disagree that uh, a Machiavellian prince um, can be a better solution, you know, keeping the lid on, um, than an open political system, whatever the exact nature of the democracy. Democracy can take a variety of forms, as we know. Uh, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Um, Yugoslavia's great dictator, Marshal Tito, a relatively benign dictator as far as dictators go, presided over the country as its unchallenged ruler and emperor, practically, from 1945 till his death in 1980, a 35-year reign. Um, I think Tito's legacy has a great deal to do with the breakup of Yugoslavia about a decade uh, after he passed away. Uh, the, the legacy, he was revered at the time, he was the personification of Yugoslavia, of Yugoslavism, but the legacy was in many ways very divisive in the longer term. And one of the ways in which Tito did fundamental and lasting damage to the prospects of Yugoslavia as a country, the country he founded, uh, uh, ironically, the second Yugoslavia in 1945, um, is that he stifled all dissent, uh, even within his own party. Uh, one of his closest wartime associates, Milovan Gilas, became a dissident uh, in the 1950s for somewhat idiosyncratic personal reasons, and Tito hounded this man for the rest of his for the rest of his life. Uh, another example is, of course, Saddam Hussein. Uh, the longer the reign of Machiavellian princes, as you, as you termed them, the more damage there seems to be to uh, the society in question. Um, that especially a democratic political culture is stifled, it is not allowed to take root by this sort of uh, Machiavellian personalized reigns. And so now another question of morality for you. Is a territory that's divided among peoples who cannot seem to live peacefully together in a mixed society, is that morally undesirable? And just as a second part of that question, in the long term, is a divided territory even more pragmatic? That's a tough question. Uh, there is a debate over ethnic separation uh, and territorial partition. Um, should it be done at all? Uh, if so, in what circumstances? Um, I'll have to be brief. It's one of my favorite topics, though, but I will try to be brief. Um, the, I think that one should treat um, advocacy of uh, ethnic separation and territorial partition with a great deal of skepticism which is not to say that it should be ruled out in all circumstances. Uh, there may be situations when, in fact, separating groups, uh, enabling them to live separately, um, is, in fact, uh, the least bad solution. But I think a lot of uh, think tank types, academics, as well as other kinds of policy practitioners, uh, jump too quickly on ethnic separation and territorial partition as a solution whenever the going gets tough. Um, we need to remember that 
ethnic separation and territorial partition comes at a very high cost, both short-term costs, for example, an escalation of violence, usually, that's the historical record, and long-term costs, for example, the transformation of an internal conflict into an international conflict. So just the plane of the, uh, of, of the conflict is transformed, the conflict doesn't go away. And this goes back to the first question you asked me about hatred and about studying hatred. Um, and I replied, of course, that political science doesn't have uh, many clues to the study of hatred. Um, but I'd like to say that, in fact, one should treat hatred with a critical eye as well. Uh, I, I absolutely believe you when you told me that uh, a young woman in Mostar uh, told you that nothing has changed despite the symbolic reconstruction of the Stari Most, the old bridge, uh, that hatred runs deep in the Bosnian countryside and so on. She's not wrong. There's a kernel of truth there. But if I had to write an essay or a book about that, uh, I would also point to the fact that Bosnia, uh, like many other troubled societies, has a very mixed, complicated record of coexistence on the one hand and conflict on the other. It's not one way or the other. There are some people that prefer not to see the conflict. There are others who are uh, not prepared to acknowledge that there is a tradition of coexistence here as well. And I think both extremes are to be shunned. Well, in more pragmatic terms, what impact should we expect from Tony Blair on the Israel-Palestinian peace process? And is he the right man for the job here? I think Blair brings too much baggage with him, uh, whatever task he takes up. Um, his remit is, of course, uh, relatively limited. Uh, he is supposed to um, uh, advise and assist uh, with uh, you know, certain reforms uh, needed in the Palestinian territories. Now, of course, as we know, the Palestinian territories have themselves you know, fragmented uh, into two uh, zones of control, which makes this task, or anybody's task, you know, all the more difficult. Uh, it remains to be seen whether Blair will, in time, expand or, or broaden his remit um, to tackle the, the broader questions of finding a compromise settlement to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Of course, I know that this is a problem that is very close to his heart, that he sincerely wants to address and make a contribution to resolving. But I think there are um, you know, lots of international players uh, who are going to be uh, much more crucial than Blair, starting with the United States, of course. Now, in your book and in your studies, you emphasize the role of the United States. What can the United States do here? What should they do? Well, what I have called upon the United States to do um, is a rather tall order. Uh, I've asked them to play a more even-handed role uh, between the two sides, uh, the state of Israel on the one hand and the Palestinians on the other. Uh, one of the things I do point out in my book is that the Israeli-American alignment um, has not been there forever. It dates very much to the post-1967 period. 
Um, and for example, in uh, 1956, when the Israelis occupied Gaza, um, essentially Eisenhower, who was president at the time, uh, wrote to Ben-Gurion telling them to get out of Gaza. And the Israelis, despite a certain degree of reluctance, uh, had to comply. Now, of course, it's widely accepted, although it's not a universal um, faith, that uh, a two-state solution is the only viable basis for an Israeli-Palestinian settlement. Um, I am open to persuasion, but I'm still not convinced by the advocates of a single binational state covering all the territory uh, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Uh, I think uh, that idea violates the core of the doctrine of self-determination of both peoples. And the last hundred years of Jewish-Arab conflict in and over Palestine is not grounds for optimism for the viability of any sort of a single binational state. Um, but the problem arises, what sort of two-state solution? Um, most Israeli politicians who count uh, are in their rhetoric and in principle in favor of a two-state solution. Um, you know, for example, you know, Zippy Livni, uh, the foreign minister, who comes from a very Eretz Israel background. Uh, um, her, her, her father was a senior uh, commander of the Irgun, which was the uh, paramilitary Jewish group affiliated to revisionist Zionism, the, from where the Likud party is descended. Uh, but the question really is what kind of two-state solution? Um, it has to be a two-state solution that is minimally equitable to Palestinian national aspirations, which means uh, a state, despite the present internal problems, covering 100% of the Gaza Strip, as close to 100% as possible of the West Bank, and uh, with a proper capital in East Jerusalem, including the inner city areas of East Jerusalem, which are populated by Palestinians, and including at least two of the quarters, sovereignty for the Palestinian state, over two of the quarters of Jerusalem's old city, the Muslim quarter and the Christian quarter. Now the good news is that this sort of solution was in fact suggested by an American president, uh, Bill Clinton, just as he was about to leave office in December 2000. But by that time, George W. Bush had been elected to his first term. Clinton was the outgoing president. Um, his views didn't count for as much as they could have had he come forth with this proposal two or three years previously. And of course, by December 2000, when Clinton published this plan for a minimally equitable and viable two-state solution to the conflict, um, the Oslo peace process had broken down irretrievably and there was massive violence all over again. So it was, the timing was not right. But remember what Eisenhower did in 1956, uh, just an example, and what Clinton suggested just as he was about to leave office in December 2000. I think that's the way United States policy should go. And indeed, since his presidency, President Clinton has mentioned that one of his deepest regrets is not resolving the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. What lessons should the United States and Britain take away from other conflicts in their dealings with Iraq and all of its ethnic politics today? Of course, there are lots of possible lessons. Uh, I'll focus on one. Um, 
This is something that I've realized from studying the former Yugoslavia and particularly Bosnia over many years since the late 1980s, since the time I was an undergraduate at Amherst College when I first became interested in Eastern Europe and then communist, subsequently post-communist societies. Um, the, it's not really possible for an external intervener or interveners, however powerful they may be in the world, to impose blueprints for solutions on these sorts of troubled or even broken societies. Um, there really is no alternative to letting, to a large degree, politics play out in the society in question. Um, the Dayton Agreement ended the war in Bosnia almost 12 years ago, but the success or indeed even the viability of Bosnia as a state is still you know, very much an open question. The jury is still out on that question. There, there are very complicated political currents in Bosnia, as you, as you well know, since you've been there. Um, likewise in Iraq, uh, the internal politics of Iraq is tremendously complicated. Uh, it's not a question of three monolithic blocs, um, as we often see in the media, uh, Kurds, Shias and Sunnis. Um, that's a simplistic representation at best and an utterly misleading representation at worst. Uh, in fact, there are all sorts of political currents, undercurrents within each of these blocs, or at least within the Shia and the Sunni communities of Iraq. And what's becoming increasingly clear is that there is no quick exit for the United States from Iraq. Um, politics has begun to play out, um, but it will take some more time before the different political factions in Iraq can come to some sort of a modus vivendi. It will take another several years. So the United States is stuck. Uh, I'm in favor of continuing the United States presence because clearly there is a role for the United States um, in countering and stamping out the worst kinds of criminality, violence, and you know, brutal misconduct. I recognize that the United States does have a role to play in, in, in Iraq even though paradoxically at the same time it's the American occupation that has led to a lot of these problems, including the Shia-Sunni divide. But I think that there is no room for impatience here. Uh, it's going to take another several years before internal politics plays out in Iraq and the different groups and factions can come to a modus vivendi. So I think the lesson that I would point to of external intervention is that uh, whether it's a peace-building operation like post-war Bosnia or an occupation come reconstruction uh, as in uh, post-2003 Iraq is that there are no quick fixes and no quick exits. All right, Professor Bose, thank you very much. We appreciate your time on the hot seat. Again, uh, that was with Professor Sumatra Bose from the LSE Government Department and his new book, Contested Lands, which is now going to be very soon a uh, forthcoming edition in Arabic. All right, thank you very much, and uh, definitely tune in next time for another podcast edition of The Hot Seat.